Bibles, come on, let me see them. Come on, yes, yes, yes. Good to see you guys today. Thank you so much for joining us. We are in a series right now entitled, This is My Bible. And what we're doing this entire year is we are taking a mountaintop look at every book of the Bible, beginning last week with Genesis, and we're going to end in December with the book of Revelation, a new book every single Sunday. And so thank you so much for joining us in that. It's going to be so exciting. We have 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. We're going to look at every single book of the Bible this year. I've asked you to do three things this year. Every single Sunday, I've asked you to do three things. One, bring your Bible to church every single Sunday. A physical copy of a Bible every single Sunday. If you don't have one, we have them at guest services, um, and we'd be happy to get you one. The second thing that I'm asking you to do is read your Bible every single day. Every day. Even if it's just one verse, read the Bible every single day. And for some of you that are mega Christians, I'm joking, you're going to read through the whole Bible in a year. How many of you started that? Come on, you're reading through the whole Bible in a year. First service has you guys blown away. Come on, how many of you are reading your Bible in a year? Oh, first, first service. Okay, got a few of you. If you haven't started, you can still catch up. Go to thisismybible.io, click on reading plans, and we have a year plan for you that follows along with this series where you can read through the entire Bible in a year. 12 minutes a day you can read through the whole Bible in a year. Did you know that? 12 minutes a day. So anyways, you can download that reading plan, you can screenshot it, whatever you'd like, um, and you can get into that. Freedom. Freedom is a beautiful thing. This country has been built on the premise of freedom. Leaving the tyranny and the religious tyranny of Europe and coming to America for freedom. Freedom. Several years ago, I used to travel to Africa every other year and a ministry that we supported, the church that I planted, they did incredible work. And what they would do is they would have these covert operations in Uganda, Gulu, and some other surrounding areas where they would rescue these children that had been kidnapped by the LRA, which is the Lord's Resistance Army, and they would kidnap these, they would go into these villages and ravage these villages and, and take these kids and turn them into child soldiers. You've probably seen movies about it. There's been a lot of movies um, about it. And they would set up these safe houses in the jungles and, and they would rescue these, these kids with the idea of returning them back to their families. Nobody wants to be in bondage. Nobody wants to be in bondage. Freedom. Tomorrow is Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And he gave his life for the premise of social justice. He said, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. He built his life around this freedom from racism. We work with partners um, here at New Hope. We, work with, we have a partnership with a ministry in Mexico. 
and a ministry called International Network of Hearts. Some of you have been on those trips with us. We financially support them. We take teams to Mexico. And they have these homes for boys and girls that have been rescued from human and sex trafficking. They've been freed from human trafficking and sex trafficking. Boys and girls, some of them very young, they freed them. They're free. We love freedom. Many of you here have served and are serving in our armed forces. And you've dedicated your life to this. Freedom. Sweet land of liberty. Let freedom ring. Matter of fact, our Declaration of Independence tells us this, that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. They are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights. And they are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Liberty. Freedom. Jesus in the New Testament said, He who the Son sets free is free indeed. Jesus also said, You shall know the truth, and the truth will what? Set you free. This was religious bondage that Jesus was talking about. Everybody wants freedom. Freedom is what the book of Exodus is all about. The words Exodus is leaving, a departure of, coming out of, slavery, bondage. They want freedom. Everybody wants freedom. You have uh, in your bulletin this morning, whoop, there it goes, when you walked in, a pamphlet that has an outline of the entire book of Exodus. This is basically a modern version of a historical outline. We've put this together for you. Keep it. It serves as a cheat sheet. We have these every single week. We have them for Genesis. We have them for Exodus. And if you want a digital copy, you can go to thisismybible.io or you go to our, if you haven't downloaded our New Hope Eastlake app, it's on there as well. And so some people told me they're keeping these for, and they're putting together a notebook and they're going to have every one of these. These are basically cheat sheets and we're making them for every book of the Bible, really good information here. And on the back is the message outline for the message um, today. So turn to the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible. That's where we're going to land today. So we're going to look at three components to this book. We're going to look at the historical content. We're going to look at some key events, some key um, people. And then we're going to close with the life applicational component. How does Exodus apply to my life? Why is it important? Are there lessons that I can take from the book of Exodus? So historical content. We're in this series right now called Foundations. We've developed mini-series to go along with this overall series of This Is My Bible. And we're in a five-week series called Foundations. Because the first five books of the Bible serve as the foundation for everything that we see, everything that comes after. These first five books are, are known as the books of Moses, or the Torah, or the Pentateuch. The definitions um, are in your notes. The word exodus literally means an exit, or a departure, or a coming out of, and we'll see this reference numerous times in this book. The original name of exodus are the first five words, depending on what translation you have, the first five words of the book of Exodus. And these are the names, and these are the names. That was the original name of the book 
of Exodus. In, in the Hebrew, it starts out with and. So Exodus is a continuation of the book of Genesis. The name was changed to the book of Genesis when the Old Testament was translated into the Greek, which was the, would have been the modern language at that time, and it's known as the Septuagint. So the name was changed to Genesis, which is probably um, a more fitting name. So in order to understand the book of Genesis, we have to backtrack just a bit. So go back to Genesis chapter 47, because this sets the stage for Exodus and why we even have Exodus. Chapter 47, remember Joseph, when he was young, Joseph, who's a Jew, right? He's a Hebrew. He, he is sold into slavery by his brothers. His brothers don't like him. They're jealous of him. And instead of killing him, which was their first plan, they decided to sell him into, into, uh, to these Egyptian merchants that were traveling by. And so Joseph grows up in Egypt and through an incredible, miraculous series of events and Joseph's choices and his connection with God, Joseph ends up becoming the most powerful, one of the most powerful men in the world. He was running Egypt. He was second to Pharaoh. He was the prime minister. He was the vice president. He had positioned Egypt uniquely to, to turn into a superpower. There is a massive famine in the land. And God had spoke to Joseph and warned him about this prior. And so he had had all kinds of food reserves. And so people came from all over to buy food from Egypt. And Joseph was in charge of all of it. And of course, part of those people that came were Joseph's brothers who had sold him into slavery. Joseph recognized them. He didn't recognize, or they didn't recognize him. Joseph talked like an Egyptian. Joseph dressed like an Egyptian. Joseph... Walked like an Egyptian. Right? So they didn't know who he was. And Joseph, instead of killing his brothers or imprisoning them, he decides to provide for them, to take care of them. Chapter 47, verse 27 says, So the people of Israel settled in the land of Goshen. Joseph had given his family, his dad was still alive, he brought his brothers, their entire families, their children, so his nieces, nephews, everybody to Egypt and basically saved their lives because of the famine. And they settled. They, they received the most prominent land, the most fertile land in Egypt called the land of Goshen. And this is where they would settle. And before long, they began to prosper there. And the population grew rapidly. Underline that. That's really important. That plays a huge role into Exodus. Jacob, that's Joseph's father, lived for 17 years after his arrival in Egypt, so he was 147 years old when he died. Flip over to chapter 50. Verse 22. So Joseph and his brothers and their families continued to live in Egypt. Joseph was 110 years old when he died. He lived to see three generations of descendants and his son, Ephraim, and the children of Manasseh's son, Makur, who were treated as if they were his own, soon, or he, Joseph says, soon I will die, verse 24, Joseph told his brothers, but God will surely come and lead you out, right? Exodus next to that. Lead you out, Exodus, of the land of Egypt. He will bring you back to the land. Remember, Genesis, God had promised that Abraham's descendants would number as the sands of the sea and the stars of the sky, and that God had a land for them, had given them land, had given them a place. 
He will bring you back to the land, vowed to give to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Joseph dies. His sons die. His sons' sons die. And so between the end of Genesis and the beginning of the book of Exodus, we have about 300 to 350 years that has passed by. And then we come on the scene in Exodus chapter 1. Look in verse 1. These are the sons of Jacob who went with their father to Egypt, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. Joseph was already down in Egypt. In all, Jacob had 70 direct descendants. In time, Joseph and each of his brothers died, ending that generation. But their descendants had many children and grandchildren. And in fact, they multiplied, circle that, they multiplied quickly that they soon filled the land. Most scholars estimate, well, the Bible actually tells us there are 600,000 men that were Israelites living in Egypt. So with women and children, estimates are around 2 million people. Some estimates are that the population of the children of Israel actually equaled or surpassed the population of the Egyptians. Egypt was a very polytheistic culture which meant that they worshipped many gods. Even Pharaoh himself was seen as a god. But the Hebrews, the Israelites, they were monotheistic. They believed in one true God. And so you have these generations and generations and generations of these Hebrews, of these Jewish, of these children of Israel. They're being raised in a very pagan, polytheistic culture. Their numbers grew rapidly. Verse 8. Then a new king came to the throne of Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph or what he had done. This is a major problem. Because up until this point, there had been peace. The Israelites were able to worship their God and live in peace because of what Joseph had done. And they remembered it for generations. But there's a new king on the horizon. There's a new Pharaoh. Have you ever worked at a job? Where leadership changed, maybe you were favored, maybe you got into a groove and you knew what was expected and this and that and things settled down really good and, and then a new CEO comes to town or a new boss takes his place, your old boss's place, his or her place, and now things have changed drastically. You're no longer the favorite, are you? A new Pharaoh had taken the throne and knew nothing about Joseph. And he's very insecure. Look what he says. Verse 9. He told his people, These Israelites are becoming a threat to us. Which in reality they hadn't. At least not militarily at all. They're peaceful people. Because there are so many of them. We must find a way to put an end to this. Here we see the beginning of the extermination. This mindset of the extermination of the Jews. If we don't find... Excuse me, if we don't, and if war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us, and then they will escape our country. This new Pharaoh is very insecure, and he looks around, and he's like, there are more Israelites than there are Egyptians. 
They're not from here. They're not of us. They're not Egyptians. Even though they were raised here, if war breaks out and our enemies come to attack us, they have no loyalty to us. They're going to join the other forces and, and overtake us. And so he's threatened. And so this dictator comes up with a plan. Exodus can be summed up in four words, and these are in your notes. Oppression, liberation, provision, and identification. So this Pharaoh comes up with a plan. Look in verse 11. So the Egyptians made the Israelites their slaves. That was their solution. And put brutal slave drivers over them, hoping to wear them down under heavy burdens. And they forced them to build the cities of Pithom and Ramses as supply centers for the king. Verse 12, but the more the Egyptians oppressed them, the more they quickly, more quickly the Israelites multiplied. The idea was, we're going to work them so hard, they won't have time or the energy to procreate. So if we work them so hard, they won't be having any more children. But it said that they multiplied even more. And they decided to make their slavery even more bitter. They were ruthless with the Israelites, forcing them to make bricks and mortar and to work long hours in the fields. And so they intensified the work. They made it worse and worse and worse. None of it was working. And so Pharaoh comes up with a horrible plan. A horrible plan that would come back to bite him big time. Then Pharaoh, verse 15, the king of Egypt, gave this order. This is straight from the throne. To the Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Pua. When you help the Hebrew women give birth, kill all the boys as soon as they are born. Can you imagine? These ladies who committed their lives to bringing life into the world as nurses. They're tasked with the responsibility that when these Hebrew ladies give birth, if it's a boy, kill the baby. Allow only the girls to live. But because the midwives feared God, isn't that amazing? They refused to obey the king and allowed the boys to live. This is unbelievable because these ladies could have easily been killed. You defy Pharaoh, it's a death sentence. And yet they were willing to put their lives on the line to stand up for God and to stand up for life. They refused to do it. And so Pharaoh came up with another plan. He came up with a law. Every Hebrew boy that you see, all of his soldiers, all of his representatives, everybody around, every Hebrew baby you see, two and under, every boy, throw him into the river. Throw him into the Nile River. That's the decree. This is the environment in which Moses was born into. Let's look at some key people. The first one is Pharaoh. Pharaoh is the king. He's the president. He has ultimate power. He's an authoritarian leader, a totalitarian leader. Egypt was a superpower, very wealthy because of what Joseph had done. They were the most powerful country in the world, and they were some of the most brilliant people. They were known for their unbelievable educational systems. As a matter of fact, the idea that the earth was round instead of flat originated from the Egyptians. They were known for their unbelievable medical techniques, especially the technique of preserving bodies 
their embalming techniques, and of course, their superior educational system, and of course, their hieroglyphics. And then the next key person you have is you have Moses. God would use Moses to deliver his people from bondage. We'll talk about him more in a few minutes. And then the third key player in the book of Exodus is Aaron. Moses reunites with his older brother Aaron. And Aaron helps Moses deliver people. In Hebrew, Aaron's name is Aaron. That's a joke. You got it. First service is like, huh? There, there, there is a few of them that got it. If you don't know Aaron, go to YouTube, okay? I had to do that. I just had to do it. I, I had to do it. How many of you got it? You, you get it? Okay. Yes, 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 yes. More people in the first service knew it than what I thought. So people are like, what are you talking about? Look it up, YouTube. The, fir- the fourth key player, you're awake now, right? The fourth key player are the children of Israel, the Jewish nation, the Hebrew nation, the Jews, the Hebrews, all the same people, the children of Israel. Key events. This is where we're going to spend the majority of the time. The first key event is the birth of Moses. Look in chapter, chapter 2, verse 1. During this time, what time? The time of which there is this decree to kill all the baby Hebrew boys. A man and a woman from the tribe of Levi got married. A woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She saw what a beautiful baby he was and kept him hidden for three months. Could you imagine being a mother? Could you imagine being a pregnant woman praying, praying, God, please do not... Let this baby come out a boy. Please. And out comes the most beautiful little boy you've ever seen. And she hid him. I would do the same, wouldn't you? She hid him for three months, but when she could no longer hide him, she got a little basket made of papyrus reeds and waterproofed it with tar and pitch. She put the baby in the basket. She does a very desperate thing a very loving thing, a very sacrificial thing, and she lays him among the reeds along the edge of the Nile River. Could you imagine having to make this choice? Your little baby who's growing, you don't want to see him murdered, so you put him in a basket, put him in a river, say, God, I can't bear to watch this. And as God would have it, you know the story. It's floating down the Nile, and none other than the daughter of Pharaoh is bathing in the Nile. She sees the basket, probably hears the cries of a baby, opens it up, and she knows that it's a Hebrew boy. And instead of killing the baby, she adopts him. And she raises him as her own. And this baby's Moses. Moses is raised in the palace. He's raised with the finest education. He's raised as an Egyptian. And as Moses grew, and you can divide his life into really three equal parts. He lived to be 120. First 40 years, he grows up in Egypt as the son of Pharaoh. Tradition has it that, and some Bible scholars say that at that time, Pharaoh did not have any sons, and so Moses would have been next in line 
The next 40 years, Pharaoh or uh, uh, Moses, and we'll find out why, flees and, and he ends up becoming a shepherd. And then the last 40, he's rescuing his people. Moses was Jewish, raised as an Egyptian, and he sees the injustice going on. And as he grows up, he doesn't lose who he is and who God is in him. And there's no doubt he probably felt that God had a purpose and a plan. He was rescued. And Moses begins to see the injustice around him, and he can no longer take it, which leads us to the next major event, and that is the sin of Moses. Look in chapter 2, verse 11. As Abraham did in the book of Genesis, Moses does in the book of Exodus. He's impatient. He figures his way is better than God's way, and so he takes matters into his own hands. Look in verse 11. He says, many years later, when Moses had grown up, he went out to visit his people, the Israelites, and he saw how hard they were being forced to work. And during his visit, he saw an Egyptian beating one of the Hebrew slaves. And after looking around to make sure no one was watching, Moses killed the Egyptian and he buried him in the sand. Well, word gets around what happened. I mean, everybody knows who Moses is. And the Pharaoh decides that he's going to kill Moses. So Moses runs. He flees to the Midian Desert, which is modern-day Saudi Arabia. He goes 200 and something miles away in isolation. He wants to just get away from everything, away from Egypt, away from Pharaoh, away from everything, and he hides for 40 years. And one day, he's a shepherd, so he's out in the fields tending the sheep, and, and he looks over and there's a bush that's burning, which leads us to the next significant event in this book, and that is the story of the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. You can read about it. Moses sees this bush that's burning, but it's not being consumed. In other words, it's burning, but it's not dissipating. It's not burning up. It's burning, but it's going nowhere. And Moses finds this odd. And then he hears a voice, and it's God calling him. God calling Moses to go back and to take care of his people, to rescue his people. Look in verse 9. He says, The cries of my people of Israel, in chapter 3, have reached me, and I have seen how the Egyptians have been oppressed with heavy tasks. Now I'm sending you to Pharaoh. This is the last person that Moses wanted to see. He'd spent 40 years in isolation running from Egypt. Moses is a wanted man, and God is saying, I want you to go back. You see, Moses was done with God's plan for his life, but God wasn't done with Moses. You will lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Write Exodus next to that. You will lead them out. Exodus. So Moses reunites with his older brother, Aaron, because Moses makes all these excuses as to why he can't do this and can't do that. And he doesn't want to go back. He's making all these excuses. And yet God says, enough of the excuses. You're going. Moses goes. He takes Aaron with him. And they confront Pharaoh. They confront him. Look in chapter 5. Verse 1, it says, After this presentation... To Israel's leaders, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and they told him, This is what the Lord God of Israel says. Let my people go, 
for they must go out into the wilderness and hold a religious festival in my honor. They're no longer allowed to worship God and to make sacrifices and do what they're used to doing. So he says, let us go, let us go out and worship our God. And look at verse 2, look at how arrogant Pharaoh is. Is that so? Who is the Lord that I should listen to him? Well, you're about to find out. I don't know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Which leads us to the next major event, chapter 7 through 10. And those are the 10 plagues that God sends. And you say, well, those are horrible. Yes, they are horrible. But God gives Pharaoh an opportunity after each one to repent and to let his people go. He refuses, and so these plagues intensify. And we don't have time to get into it this morning, but an interesting study outside of today, each of these plagues correspond with a god that the Egyptians worshipped. It's kind of like a, uh, you know, you worship this god, well, look at what I'm going to do. And, and it's kind of a shot at each of the different gods that they worship. It's an interesting study if you have time. So these plagues come, the water turning into the blood. This is the Nile. The frogs cover the land. It's interesting, they they actually worshipped this goddess of Egypt who was in the form of a frog. And it was illegal to kill frogs because of that. So you have frogs everywhere. Anyways, that's a whole other story. Dust becomes gnats, the swarm of flies. We have these lice, and then we have the flies. And then we have the next plagues, the disease that would affect the cattle and the livestock, another god that they, that they worshipped was in the form of a bull. Remember, and the Israelites went out into the, uh, uh, into the wilderness and, and they began to idol, idol worship. They created a what? A golden what? Because that's what they'd seen their whole lives. And then boils come, hell and fire. And Pharaoh's response is still, there is no way I'm letting him go. As a matter of fact, a few times Pharaoh began to believe in God and he began to say, pray for me. And Pharaoh did say, okay, your people can go. And then he changed his mind. And so more and more plagues came until the final one. Pharaoh would not listen. He would not do what God's people, or he would not let God's people go. Chapter 10, verse 27, Pharaoh's heart becomes even more hard, becomes harder and harder. Most scholars believe that these plagues lasted four to six months. And now things get even worse, which leads us to our next main event in the book of Exodus, and that is Passover. That is the Passover. This is what God says. Remember how Pharaoh had put a decree to kill all the male baby boys? Well, this would come back to bite him because this last plague would be the worst of all. And it would finally get Pharaoh's attention. God says, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to send a death angel over Egypt. And every firstborn male, Egyptian male, is going to die. But I will save my people. I will rescue my people. You're to sacrifice a spotless lamb. And with that blood, you're to put the blood on the doorpost of your home. And when the death angel comes over Egypt, he will pass over. You get it? Pass over those that have been covered by the blood, which is incredible symbolism we'll talk about next week of what Jesus did for us. The Jewish people still celebrate Passover today. The last 
or excuse me, the next big event is the Exodus. We see in chapter 13 and chapter 14. They're finally free. They finally leave. They're finally out of Egypt. Pharaoh lets them go, but then he changes his mind. And he gets his army and they go running after the Israelites. Do you imagine? Two million people leaving the country. That was most of their workforce because they were slaves. And Pharaoh thought, oh, this is not a good idea. So he goes after them to bring them back. It's interesting that in the Old Testament, whenever one of the prophets um, or whenever one of the writers um, in the Old Testament wants to reference God's power or God's unbelievable power, in the Old Testament, the Exodus is always referenced. And the idea is this. If God can do this, God can do anything. In the New Testament, when one of the New Testament writers wants to talk about God's power or how powerful God is, there's always a reference to the resurrection. If God can raise Jesus from the dead, God can do anything. And so this is a monumental event that God's people are leaving. They're fleeing, they're fleeing, and they come up against the Red Sea. You know the story. There's nowhere to go. Pharaoh's armies are coming after them. They have the sea in front of them with two million people. How do they cross the sea? And you know the story, the miracle of God parting the Red Sea. The water there's huge walls on each side of them, and they cross over on dry ground. And you say, well, how in the world did God do that? Remember Genesis 1? In the beginning, that's how. The Egyptian army follows as God's people make it through to the other side. The river, the sea comes back and swallows the Egyptian army. They go into the wilderness. They begin to wander. And then they begin to complain and grumble. They're hungry. So God provides in chapters, chapter 16 what's called manna from heaven. These little honey wafers. Every single day, fresh every day, God had provide for them. God gave them water. God gave them food. God gave them a, a, a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day where he guided them and he directed them. And then in chapter 20, the next major event are the Ten Commandments. You need moral and social structure. Remember, they had been raised and grown up in a polytheistic culture, in a culture that did not honor God. And so they needed to learn boundaries. They needed to learn moral values. And so God gives them this list of these commandments that they're to follow. And then the book closes 25 through 40 with the building of the tabernacle, which we'll talk more about next week. It was this mobile tabernacle where God's people would have a place to worship, a place of sacrifice. God wanted them to get into the routine of going to the tabernacle and worshiping God. Let's close out with this, life application. Why is Exodus important? How is it relevant to my life? Well, the first thing is this. When life is difficult, don't be hesitant to ask God for help. The Bible says in chapter 2, in Exodus 2.23, that the Israelites, that God heard the cries of his people, and God hears you as well. A lot of times when things go on in our lives, we're like, oh, I need to call my pastor. Or if I'm sick, I need to call the doctor, or I need a therapist, or, or I need a counselor. And those are all amazing things. But don't forget about God. God should be your first call. God hears your prayers. He hears your cries. He cares about everything that's going on in your life. 
No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what you're going through, God wants to hear from you. The second important life application component to this book is this, an amazing lesson, is that when God brings a deliverance, many times it requires us to leave the old and to embrace the new. The Bible says that we have been redeemed. What that means is this. That means that a debt hasn't just been canceled, but the debt has been paid for. And every one of us have owed a debt. The Bible says that Jesus, that Jesus came to redeem us. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. We've been redeemed, all of us. We've been redeemed because of what Jesus did for us. Every person in this room, no matter what you've done, no matter what sins you've committed, Jesus died for those sins. We've been redeemed. And with that comes responsibility. It's a blessing. But with it comes responsibility. And when God brings a deliverance, many times it requires us to, uh, to leave the old and embrace the new. For the Israelites to get what God had for them, they had to leave Egypt behind. They had to embrace the new. And for us, oftentimes, that might require us to quit going to some of those places we used to go. And quit hanging around some of those people we used to hang around, at least temporarily. And quit doing some of the things that we used to do. The Bible says if any man be in Christ is a new creation. The old things have passed away and behold all things become new. And if we continue to be around or in a relationship that continues to pull us from God. Sometimes we have to leave Egypt behind. And embrace and trust that God has something better for us. The third lesson is this. Do not despise your past even if it's filled with difficult situations. Do not despise your past. A lot of times, and this is horrible, sometimes the church makes you feel so guilty and condemned and judged for things that you've done. And so what we do is we say, hey, we, we, we value honesty. But when you're honest, then we judge you for your honesty. We should be able to be open and honest and love and support one another because your story is important. Your story is valuable. Your story could be a platform for ministry that makes a difference in people's lives. And if we hide that, if we're scared of that, and we're not at a church that allows us to be ourselves, then we may never have a platform to be a blessing to other people because we're scared to tell our story. Let me ask you this. Who better to lead the Israelites out of Egypt than the person that was raised in Egypt, Moses. Yeah, he's a murderer. Yes, he did horrible thing. And yes, he's ran from God for 40 years. But who better? Maybe you've struggled with addiction. And by God's grace, you're on the other side of that. You tell me there's somebody better than you that can help and empathize and support somebody going through the same thing you've gone through? Maybe you've been through a divorce and you know the pain of that. Who better to help somebody going through the pain of that than you? Maybe you struggle with mental health, with depression, anxiety, whatever it might be, and by God's grace, you're, you're getting a hold of it. Who better to love and to support 
and to help somebody going through the same thing than you. Don't be ashamed of your story. Don't be embarrassed of your story. And if you're at a church that judges you for your story, find another church. Your story can be used by God in incredible ways to be a blessing. And if we share our story, we might miss out on that. And other people might miss out on that. Lastly, the last lesson from this book is this. God's ways are superior to our ways. Moses took matters into his own hands. Abraham in Genesis took matters into his own hands. And let me tell you from experience, it never works out. You always end up in the desert somewhere, running from your calling. God gives these Ten Commandments. You say, well, they're in bondage again. No, they're not. Sometimes God asks us to do things or to not do things or to stay away from stuff because it's good for us, not because it's bad for us. Like your little kid. Do you say, oh, you know, go, go play on the freeway. Go ahead. Oh, you know, I don't want to be a restrictive parent. I don't want to, you know, I'm not going to teach them stranger danger. I don't want to have them in bondage. No. You know things your kids don't know. God, know, God created us. Genesis. God knows things that we don't know. He sees things that we can't see. So if God tells us to get out of a certain situation or quit going back into the, God's got a reason for it. And he knows best. God's ways are superior to our ways. And Moses finally did the right thing and did God's will instead of his own will. And he delivered two million people. Next week, we're going to look at the book of Leviticus. Now, if you're going to get stumped in your Bible reading plan, it's going to be in this book. Listen, it's hard for me. Just read it. The staff's been asking me all week, what are you going to do next week with Leviticus? I'm going to say, well, when Pastor Russ gets back from vacation, he's going to find out. I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm teaching Leviticus. There's more there than you realize. There's unbelievable nuggets in Leviticus. It's a hard read, but it's there. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for these incredible stories that you've preserved for us, as lessons for us. And God, I pray for each person here today. These books are so practical. God, I pray for each person that if there's somebody here today, for whatever reason, they might still be in Egypt. They might still be trapped in their past and trapped in habits, maybe an ungodly relationship, whatever it might be, some part of their life that they know is not healthy. God, sometimes we have to leave Egypt in order to experience the promised land. And God, if there's somebody like that, I pray that you give them the power and the strength to do what's right. And God, I pray that if they've only relied upon themselves for deliverance and to make things better, I pray that today things would change. I pray that today, right now, where they're at, that they would say, God, today I give you my life. I'm tired of doing things my way. I want to do things your way. And so I surrender to you. I'm leaving Egypt today. I want everything that you have for me. And I want to go where you want me to go, and I want you to be what you want me to be. 
So today I surrender myself to you. And I want to be delivered from bondage. Father, I pray for every person here today that maybe they have a story that's inside of them that they've kept quiet. And sometimes for some reasons, maybe it's good to do that in some cases. But God, I found out that so many times that when we hide our story, we're missing out on a huge blessing, not only in our lives, but our story could literally make a difference and change somebody else's life. Moses hid because he did the wrong thing, but he finally decided to confront it. And despite his past, he decided to be God's man. And so, Father, I pray that you empower people today and help us as a church to not be a judgmental, look down upon church, but that we'd be a church that comes alongside each other and loves each other. And this is a place, a safe place, where people can share their stories and be authentic and be real. And where people can see you use them in incredible ways. We all have a ministry. We all have a story. In Jesus' name, amen.